This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Paul writes this, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Brooklyn Dodgers president Branch Rickey is one of my heroes. His signing of Jackie Robinson in 1947, that's been well documented in the movie 42, was groundbreaking for its time. For him to destroy the color barrier in professional sports was revolutionary and actually very inspiring. Just to give you context for the decision he made, it was 18 years before the Voting Rights Act, 17 years before the Civil Rights Act in 1964. He did this decision 16 years before Dr. Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech. This was 10 years before President Eisenhower used the U.S. military to enable the famous Little Rock Nine to attend Central High School in Arkansas. This is eight years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. This is seven years before the Supreme Court rendered its decision in Brown versus the Board of Education. This is a whole year before President Truman ordered the U.S. military to be desegregated. Now, what motivated Branch Rickey to be a pace setter, to face extremely difficult odds and opposition? The gospel. He was known those days as a Bible-thumping Methodist. As Branch Rickey thought through the gospel, as he began to apply it through various facets of his life, he saw that racism and classism was an affront to the gospel. He saw that there was no black and white in the gospel, but rather people were made in the very image of God, and because they're made in the image of God, they had worth and dignity. So when Branch Rickey went to find a ball player to break the color barrier, not any man could do. Sure, he needed a world-class athlete, but that was not his main criteria. Sure, he needed a high character guy, but that wasn't his main criteria. He needed a man that loved the gospel as much as he did. He needed a man that'd be willing to apply the gospel just like him. You see, Branch's strategy for desegregation was non-retaliation. He was writing the playbook for future generations to come. Whoever Branch signed would have to have the faith to apply the gospel each and every inning, each and every game, each and every day of his life. When Branch invited Jackie Robinson to his office for a secret meeting, they met for three hours and they didn't talk baseball one minute. They talked about the gospel. They went straight to the Sermon on the Mount and there Branch unfolded his game plan for desegregating baseball. And he said this 
to Jackie Robinson. We can't fight our way through this, Robinson. We've got no army. There's virtually nobody on our side, no owners, no umpires, and very few newspapermen. I'm afraid many fans will be hostile. How's that for a sales pitch for a job? Branch knew that if he signed a player that fought back, it would set back the movement to integrate baseball by at least 10 to 15 years. And he said this, I'm looking for a player who has the guts not to fight back. Branch called this injustice the odious injustice, and he was looking for a man that would repeatedly and constantly go back to Jesus so they could integrate baseball. Now, the gospel at work in Jackie Robinson's life did not disappoint. He literally earned more honors and accolades too numerous to recount in the sermon, but what's worth noting is he endured injustice to slowly change a nation, but by the power of the gospel. You see, the gospel is the power of salvation in the life of a follower of Jesus. The gospel unleashed spreads like wildfire. The gospel regularly received will bear massive fruit in someone's life. As we embarked on this series in Galatians, Paul's not just been defending his apostleship, he's been defending this beautiful, powerful gospel. The gospel's initial work in Galatia was profound and beautiful and it started all these amazing churches. But now the Galatians are deserting this amazing gospel. And we'll see in future sermons have wreaked havoc in their lives. But Paul's on a mission in this letter to rescue the Galatian churches. He wants them to recapture the power of the gospel. And as we reach Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we are seeing the climax to the defense of his apostleship. But Paul's up to much, much more in these verses. He's giving the Galatian church tools to recapture the power of the gospel that they have abandoned so they can move forward in their spheres of influence and do great things for his kingdom. If we, like the Galatians, want to experience greater gospel fruit, greater gospel power, if we want to impact the world and our spheres of influence like Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson, then there's three things from this passage we must take to heart. Galatians 2, 11 through 14 reveals a universal problem, an essential principle, and a necessary practice. A universal problem, essential principle, and a necessary practice. Let's begin at the first point. Paul reveals a universal problem. A baseline I want to give you as we start out is I want you to see that at the beginning, the Apostle Peter understands the gospel. In Acts 2, what we celebrate is Pentecost. In Jerusalem, he preached the most amazing Christ-centered sermon where it's clear that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation that our obedience actually gets in the way because it needs the blood of Jesus, but rather all that matters is the obedience of Jesus on our behalf. Fast forward, as he's going around preaching the gospel, he ends up in Joppa, and he's on a rooftop, and he's praying, and on that rooftop, Jesus meets him and gives him the same vision three times. And in that vision, a sheet comes down from heaven, and it covers the four corners of the earth, and it says, I saw all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And then he heard Jesus say to him, rise, Peter, Peter, kill and eat. And then Peter was like, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He's offended. Jesus told me to eat some animals and he was offended. And then verse 15, I love this. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, Peter got the message. 
A little bit later, the next day, he went to Caesarea, and there he met Cornelius, and Cornelius was begging him to come tell him about Jesus, and Peter got it. He said this, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation, but God has shown me, and he didn't say it three times in a vision, but it's shown me that I cannot call any person uncommon or unclean. So Peter goes to Cornelius' home, and he visits with his friends and relatives, and he preaches the gospel to them. And Peter knows that the Holy Spirit was falling on them while he was preaching the gospel. And the believers that accompanied Peter, these were Jewish believers who were circumcised, who came with Peter were amazed, the Bible says, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So much so that Peter, in verse 47, says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? They receive the Holy Spirit just like we Jews have. And Peter commanded them to be baptized. Fast forward, Peter ends up in Jerusalem. And last week we learned that there's this amazing power meeting where James and Peter and John, the stalwarts, the big guys, the guys who ran the church, met with Paul and Barnabas and Titus. As Ted aptly defined for us, they had this huge whiteboarding sessions where they shared each other's versions of the gospel and they realized they're on the same page. They realized they're preaching the same gospel. Peter said, Jesus has really commissioned you. You really are an apostle. You're my peer. And he gave him the right hand of fellowship saying, we've been sent to the circumcised and you've been sent to the Gentiles. So much so that Titus, who was with Paul and Barnabas, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Peter gets the gospel. But then we fast forward to Antioch. And this is the story that Paul is retelling to the Galatian church. Peter was living out of the gospel. We see in verse 12 that he was eating with the Gentiles. They were enjoying freedom. They were enjoying fellowship. They were peers. They were living out the gospel in each other's homes and lives as the way they were ought to. And Peter has so much gospel momentum going for him. Oh, but then suddenly things changed. Verse 12, certain men came from James. Now, we're not exactly sure who these men are and how much they really represented James. But when they came, he, being Peter, drew back and separated himself. Peter folds. He shrinks back in a subtle ways at first. There's no statements. There's no views that are being changed. He just kind of vanishes from the scene. And his practice is taken as a model, and it literally divides the church. So how did the apostle Peter, the rock on whom Jesus is building the church of Jesus Christ, find himself in this situation? Verse 12, fearing the circumcision party. You see, Jesus, the gospel was no longer enough. His righteousness that he gave him, his love, his perfect standing, Peter needed their approval. Peter was adding to the gospel. Suddenly the gospel functionally for him became Jesus plus the approval from the men from James equals salvation. Peter is wandering from the gospel. Verse 12, certain men came from James. Again, we have no idea who they really are, but we know that the church welcomed them. They were not outsiders. They must have had some clout in standing in the church and at least enough to intimidate Peter. Now how did they end up feeling comfortable adding to the gospel? I mean, it's not that hard to understand. They love their culture. They love their ethnicity. They love their heritage. They love their religion. And so much of it's been so good and useful and encouraging. Why not keep it? It can't hurt. Think about it. They had the Old Testament laws and clean and unclean. And it was good for them. And if it's good for them, wouldn't it be good for everyone else? 
They had these man-made rules from the rabbinical tradition where, for example, when you're not supposed to eat meat from Gentile markets. You don't know where that came from. You need good, wholesome meat from the Jewish markets. And if, again, it was good for them, isn't it good for everyone else? And there's the tradition set by the Pharisees. I mean, who, who you really associate with really matters. I mean, I think you've heard your mom say this to you when you were a child. Purity matters. You don't want to be contaminated, do you? Again, if it was good for them, it's good for everyone. And ultimately, they felt like their brand of Christianity is better and superior. And in subtle ways, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation turns into Jesus plus Jewish traditions plus laws plus best practices equals salvation. And we see that the circumcision group is wandering from the gospel. Both the circumcision group and the Jews they influence and Peter have wandered from the gospel. This is our universal problem. Every one of us, just like Peter is prone to wander from the gospel. If the rock of the church can do it, so can you, so can I. Think about it. You're completely loved and welcomed and enjoyed by your heavenly father. Jesus reconciles you fully to him. Any wall, any tension between you, father, was eradicated. You have his standing before him, but when you start feeling inferior and insecure like Peter, you're wandering from the gospel. When you start feeling better and superior like the circumcision group, you're wandering from the gospel. Peter, for some reason, needed the approval of the circumcision group. The heat of their approval was hotter than the heat of the gospel, which led him to cave on his convictions. Think about the circumcision group. They have certain affinities and customs and best practices that are burning brighter than the light of the gospel, which turned them into pushy cultural elitists and racists. What about you? How are you presently wandering from the gospel? Where are you insecure right now? Whose approval do you really, really need? Where do you feel like you're not measuring up? Or say another way, where do you feel better and superior to others that you know? What do you got going on in your life that you just really feel other folks need to have? What are you pushing and selling just a little bit more than Jesus? You know, it usually starts so subtle, but it's amazing how it can grow and take on heat. Let me give you two quick examples I regularly engage in New City. First, it's our kids. How we birth them, feed them, structure their lives, sleep them, and discipline them matters way too much to most of us. We start getting a little bit of success. We really like our affinities. We like our best practices. We like our customs. They really work for us. And we start slowly chipping away at the freedom of others. Instead of leading with the gospel, which is what our new and expecting moms and dads desperately need, trust me, they really need to hear the gospel. Like the circumcision group, we lead them to that which was helpful to us. And there's other families in our church because they care too much what others think and they're not measuring up to these new standards of the day. They feel subpar and they shrink back and they don't speak up. We are prone to wander from the gospel. Let me give you another example. Who do you choose to spend time with? When you've chosen a community group to land on, and even in that group, which people are you choosing to be more consistent with? What divides you from some and attaches you to others? Sometimes for us, it's style, it's image, it's value, it's their beauty, it's their background, it's their success, it's their money. That impacts our desires to be with them or not with them. You see, we have a universal problem and it's that's that we wander from the gospel. There's a reason Jesus tells us in Matthew 26 to watch and pray. 
There's a reason Paul and John keep raising their hands telling us to do the exact same thing because the hymn writer is right. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's a real question for us this morning. Do you know how you typically wander? Do you know where you're being tempted to wander right now? And if I could take it a step further, how are you taking your wandering head on? We all have a universal problem in wandering. But thankfully, Paul gives us an essential principle that deals with our universal problem. So on to our second point this morning. Galatians 2, 11 through 14 reveals an essential principle. Now, how Paul handles Peter in Antioch is paradigm altering. Look at what Paul did not say to Peter. He didn't say, hey, Peter, you're being a racist. He didn't say, hey, Peter, you're being a cultural elitist. Stop that. It's not good. He didn't say, hey, Peter, you're being a wimp and a people pleaser. He didn't say, hey, Peter, you're dividing the church of Jesus Christ and totally compromising the gospel. All these statements are true. Paul could have led with any one of these, but he didn't. Instead, he took it to a deeper level. At its core, racism, cultural elitism, people-pleasing, and division is a gospel issue. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Not in step is a very interesting word. It's only used by Paul in this passage and nowhere else in the Bible. The Greek word here is orthopedeo. These words are familiar to us. Ortho being straight. It's what your orthodontist does to your teeth, right? And pedeo, it's to walk. So it's, it's to walk in line, it's to walk straight, it's to advance in the direction. Paul's saying that their erroneous conduct was not in keeping with the gospel. Paul's saying that if you take the gospel and you start drawing straight lines of application to race and class and culture and community, that Peter and the circumcision group stopped walking in line with the gospel. They stopped applying the gospel. They stopped thinking about the gospel. They stopped walking in the gospel. Now, this is a profound and essential principle that Paul is giving us. If our universal problem is that we wander from the gospel, the essential principle is that we must continually apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives. We must constantly bring our lives in line with the gospel. We must, be, we must let the gospel be the controlling reality in our lives. We must think it out. We must draw lines of application and with humility do our best to get on those lines of application. Now Paul is over and over clear about the gospel in Galatians. Although it's not in our worship folder, my mistake. Verse 16 He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Now, let's do it now. Let's just play this gospel application game along with Paul. Let's apply gospel to culture. Often, dominant cultures in society think their way is best. We can't help it. Take this room. We love to be effective and efficient and on time and fast-paced and busy, and we hate it when things start late and don't get done on time. In India, my grandfather's town was shut down from 2 to 3 p.m. for everyone to literally take a nap. And then from three to four, there'd be tea time. Now, typically, 
British colonialism and imperial dictatorship of India was frowned upon, but this is one of the positive byproducts. You take a nap from two to three and you drink tea from three to four. I'm in. This is great. And then everyone worked again from 5 to 8 p.m. Now, both cultures would argue that they're right. I think I grew up thinking, I want to be effective and time efficient. Now that I'm 40, I would love to take a nap at 2 o'clock every day and have tea time from 3 to 4. But how do you know which culture is right? Some would argue that all cultures are equal. There's not bad or good. They're just different. And you should, they should be all equally valued. But we know intuitively that's just not right. All cultures have some things that are really, really wrong with them and should be detested. But if you take the gospel and you apply it, the culture, to a culture that we see, we see that all cultures have strengths that need to be celebrated and all cultures have weaknesses that need to be questioned. You see, the gospel liberates us because we're getting our identity in Christ to appreciate different cultures and yet not be beholden to them. We understand the gospel liberates us to see that no culture on earth fully captures the beauty and the truth of the kingdom of heaven. So now it frees us to read every culture through the lens of the scripture. Let me do another quick example, money. In our culture, we're often defined by money. Money defines us, we're measured by money, we're controlled by our need for money. Money helps us to feel safe and control and often feels like money uses us. But in the gospel, we're bought with a price. Jesus himself died on our behalf. That was the cost. It was him. He absorbed wrath for us to give us his righteousness. He redeemed us, meaning he purchased us back from sin and death. And so God, who is rich, Jesus, and everything in heaven, became poor to make us rich and give us his very inheritance. So, since we're defined by that righteousness of Jesus, as we daily apply that to our lives, it frees us to use our money and not be used. It frees us to be stewards of our money and invest it outside of ourselves because we no longer need it to protect us or define us. And we're now free to give it away with great joy because we just don't need it. Lee Fund, he pitched with the Dodgers during Jackie Robinson's early years. On their first road trip, no one wanted to sit next to Jackie. He was alone on the bus, but Lee sat right next to him. They started sharing their stories together, and they started talking about their families, and they started talking about their shared faith because Lee loved Jesus, and he sat next to his brother, and they became friends. Now, Lee saw firsthand the sheer evil Jackie had to face every game, opposing pitchers aiming for his head, opposing managers saying the most detestable things, fans saying and doing things I just really can't utter in this room. Maybe at downtown tonight, I might bring out some of those things for you, but it was awful. So what did Jackie do each and every inning and game? He went to the gospel. He thought about how much Jesus loved him. He thought about the sins he committed that day and asked Jesus for forgiveness. He confessed his weaknesses and how hard it was not to fight back, and he begged Jesus for strength. But what he thought about most was the one who stayed on the cross for him, enduring its shame and scorn and how Jesus at any moment could have asked millions of angels to liberate him and to decimate the earth, but Jesus stayed there for him. And as he thought about that, it empowered him daily, hourly, half innings to move forward in the gospel. You know, and our marriages can be quite difficult. Our workplaces can be quite challenging. Our community group relationships can be kind of hard. Our time with our children have their peaks and valleys. 
And the only way we'll bear fruit and experience the power of the gospel is by applying the gospel each and every moment. This is the essential principle, applying the gospel to all of life. So it changes the way you look at the gospel for the Christian life. The gospel is not just how you enter the Christian life, it's for the whole of Christian life. It's not just for the beginning of the Christian life, it's for all of it. The gospel is for constant thinking. The gospel is for constant application. Now Paul is rather brilliant in what he does with these three verses. Sure, he gives us or models for us this universal problem that we wander. And sure, Paul gives us this essential principle for that problem that we apply the gospel. But Paul models for us. He gives us a necessary practice. It's almost the key to ignite the essential principle. So let's conclude with our third point. Galatians 2, 11 through 14 reveals a necessary practice. Now, what was it like for Paul when he showed up to Antioch? Let's just get our hearts around where his heart was many, many years ago. Imagine his shock. Verse 13, the hypocrisy of Peter and the Jews and the circumcision group. And again in verse 13, that even Barnabas was led astray. You can almost feel his pain as you read those words. Now, think about this. Barnabas. This is after Paul's first missionary journey. Who is his sidekick? Who is his partner in crime? It was Barnabas. The two of them were on the ultimate road trip, and they saw hundreds, hundreds of Gentiles come to faith, be filled with the Holy Spirit, whom they baptized and made churches out of. And that Barnabas, through the hypocrisy of Peter, too, was led astray. Think about it. At the power meeting, Barnabas and Peter shook hands, and the two of them together were now complicit in the division and the compromise of the gospel. It was devastating for Peter to see. In Paul's mind, the text said that Peter stood condemned. I rarely say this, but I think that's way too literal of a translation. It's jargon of that time. It's, it, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's better translated than other versions have as clearly in the wrong, or I like judged to be wrong. Paul went into strategy mode. He knew he needed to confront Peter, and he was probably thinking to himself, private is always better than public. Private is always better than public. Oh, but Peter's sin is so public, and public sins need an appropriate public response. Oh, man, the church is a stake, and the gospel is a stake. You know, internally, he went, rats. I need to pose him publicly, openly, man-to-man, face-to-face. This is going to hurt. You know, everyone will need to be confronted with the gospel at some point even the apostle Peter. And Paul, Paul models for us in the church, in Antioch, and in this letter to Galatians, that the necessary practice for gospel power and fruit is gospel confrontation. We wander from the gospel often. We fail to apply the gospel to various issues and circumstances in our life. And when we do, we need appropriate and loving confrontation. Now look at how Paul confronts Peter. I think it's really helpful. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, we don't get everything Paul said to Peter, but he recorded for the Galatians the same question Peter needed to hear in Antioch. Paul is trying to get the Galatians, just like Peter, to start thinking about the gospel. You see, this necessary practice is not condemnation, but gospel confrontation. It's not wrath and judgment. It's love carefully articulated. 
If we're going to confront others with the gospel, there's no way we'll be able to do this unless we're really believing the gospel ourselves. And ultimately, for us to confront others in the gospel, they might enjoy it, we gotta confront ourselves with the gospel. Now Martin Luther, who got this whole Protestant church, Reformation, Jesus stuff working again, he had this to say in his commentary on this passage. The truth of the gospel is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Now, pay attention to this. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Well said. I know my heart. I know how quickly I forget the gospel. I know how much I need other people just to get in front of me and beat the gospel into my head. If we're going to apply the gospel to all of life, before we beat into other people's heads and teach it to others, we must know it well. We gotta be grounded in it. So what is the gospel that we must daily confront with our hearts? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know that the gospel is past tense, present tense, and future tense. As past tense, Jesus has saved you. What is the gospel? The gospel is that you're the beloved of God. He has set his affections upon you. That he's called you out of darkness to himself. That he's adopted you as a son and a daughter that has every privilege and right that Jesus does. That in sin, in darkness, when you were his enemy, he chose you to be with himself. He moved towards you in eternity past. And there he justified you on the cross and gave you the very righteousness of Jesus as he poured out wrath on him. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing. He's redeemed you and brought you back from slavery and death. He's sanctified you and set you apart and made you holy. He's regenerated you and actually he's made you alive to him. He's made you a fellow heir so that one day you will reign and rule with Jesus and you have every bit of his status. That he has already technically raised you up with Christ in the heavenly realms and I have no idea what that means. That you're alive to God, that you're born again, that you're literally a new creation, that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit who's going to hold on to you until your salvation has met its completion and that you're rooted and grounded and established in God's love like you're a tree planted in the ocean of God's love. Jesus has saved you. It's past tense. But Jesus is saving you. It's present tense. Right now, the Holy Spirit's renewing you into the very image of Jesus. God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is giving you faith to trust in him. He's giving you power to deal with sin in your life. He's giving you assurance that you know that you're loved and you're cared for by your Father. He's giving you hope to believe in things that are not seen yet. He's giving you the Holy Spirit to teach you, to counsel you, to encourage you, to lead you, to fill you up. He's giving you repentance to turn from your sins. He's giving you the fruit of the Spirit that you may know it's fullness and wholeness. He's giving you a joy to treasure all that you have in Jesus. He's helping you to see Jesus and behold him as he's giving you peace as you're being transformed to the very image of Jesus and he's giving you love so that the whole world can see that the gospel is true and he's growing you in grace as you're being sanctified and right now Jesus is praying for you. And whereas when I pray for you, it may or may not happen, it may or may not be effectual when Jesus prays for you, the answer is always yes. But the gospel is not just past tense, 
It's not just present tense, it's future tense. Jesus will save you. You see, one day you'll be like him in every way. One day you'll be comforted in every possible way. One day you will actually live out and experience and taste the inheritance Jesus has for you. One day you'll have a redeemed body where your body will be perfect and you'll enjoy your flesh the way it's meant to be enjoyed and you'll be fully glorified as Jesus. And as the Bible says, you'll be fully satisfied. There'll be no want in your heart, no imperfection because you'll be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. And you'll be blessed in the fullness of that sense of that word and you'll be holy and you're going to enjoy the marriage supper of the lamb, the best party that will ever be thrown in history. Now our hearts need to hear this gospel every day. Our hearts need to be confronted with this beautiful reality every day. We wander from this treasure each and every day and it is our privilege as sons and daughters or a heavenly father to live here to be confronted with this good news, to make this our salvation and nothing else. There's a necessary practice in the scriptures and it's called gospel confrontation. And we need to do it with ourselves and others. And that helps us with the essential principle of applying the gospel, which helps us with the universal problem of wandering from the gospel. And if we do that, it leads to gospel power and fruit which will lead to the world changing around us in our spheres of influence, where like Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey, we will see the world change around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you love us, that you gave us your son who has a grand hold of us, that we're caught up in his grace and love, and even when we try, we cannot escape it because you are faithful to your promises. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You're the author and perfecter of our faith. Forgive us for how we run away from this gospel. We have hearts that are prone to wander, Lord. Give us the grace and the courage to confront ourselves and allow others to confront us that we may find our home in this gospel and live out of its beauty and power. Lord, we're thankful this is what the Spirit is doing. Help us to join him in this beautiful work. For we pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus.